This is the podcast for the final session of our Bible study on 1 Corinthians. Today we're really only focusing on chapter 15. It's the pinnacle of the letter, and it's really what ties everything else together. I also think it has a uh, part of the is can form part of the foundation for how we can have uh, difficult conversations about things uh, uh, we disagree about, and uh, how we can make the church be a place of welcome and love, and yet make clear our stance against hateful things. To start with, uh, this chapter is about resurrection, so I'd invite you to reflect a little bit on resurrection and what it means to you. And then we're going to start with chapter 15 and read verses 1 through 11. We're just going to go through a section at a time and talk about it a little bit. So 15, 1 to 11. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in return in turn received, in which also you stand, through which you also are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me has not been in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have come to believe. Here Paul is laying the groundwork for the rest of the chapter. He's giving the family history, reminding the Corinthians uh, where they come from, really throughout the letter, but uh, especially here in this chapter, he's trying to get the Corinthians to see where they fit into God's story. We began with the question, what is the gospel? And uh, it's right here in the in this uh, particular chapter that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Scripture here doesn't mean the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They weren't even written at this time. Paul is talking about what we call the Old Testament story. Paul understands that Jesus' coronation as king, as Messiah, was where the story had been headed all along. But it's in Christ's resurrection that the end of the story, or at least the beginning of the ending, was revealed. The Christian story is first and foremost about an event, an event that forever changed the world. That's what makes it news. The fact that it's God's story of victory over sin and death makes it good. Next, we'll read verses 12 through 19. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain and your faith has been in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still dead in your sins. Then those also who have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul here is wrestling with a worldview that says resurrection doesn't make sense. It's not logical, and it can't happen. That was the pagan worldview. 
In Greek and Roman mythology, there was the shadowy realm of the dead, Hades, but there was no real sense of resurrection in pagan mythology. The Jews of the time believed in resurrection, but believed it was something that would happen to everyone at once at the end of time. Some of the Greek philosophers believed in life after death, primarily of the soul, but that isn't resurrection. Basically, Paul is arguing here that if Jesus wasn't bodily raised, a real resurrection, then Jesus' crucifixion just made him another in a long line of failed messiahs. Rome and death won. But, Paul argues, since Jesus was raised, a whole new world and a whole new world of possibilities have opened up. Next, 20 to 28. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that this does not include the one who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected, subjected to the one who put all things in subjection under him, so that God may be all in all. The Jews of Paul's day were waiting anxiously for God's Messiah to come. They believed this Messiah would rule over the whole world, would defeat the nations who had oppressed Israel, and restore Israel to glory, and then raise all the righteous dead to share in this new world. Jesus' resurrection was the sign that that had happened, just not the way everyone thought it would, with one person in the middle of history. With Jesus' victory, his reign over all creation is established, but the purpose hasn't yet been fulfilled. That purpose is to restore creation and defeat its enemies, sin and death. One of the things we had a little bit of a conversation about was verse 24, where it said that uh, Jesus would hand the kingdom to God after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority, authority and every power. We talked a little bit about the understanding about how what, what's happening in earth is a reflection of what's happening in the heavens. And that when Paul talks about principalities and authorities and rulers, there's a, a, a mirror image essentially of, what, of the heavens and on the earth. And that in it, the whole thing is envisioned as this battle of good over e good versus evil. So the defeat of sin of authorities and powers and rulers may not necessarily be the mean the destruction of the actual people. What it means is this uh, spirit of oppression, the the uh, the uh, evil basically that leads to authorities and principalities um, oppressing people and depriving them of the life that God desires for them. Essentially, the resurrection starts the new creation as surely as God's word started creation in the first place. Resurrection isn't about going to heaven when we die. We can trust that we are with Jesus when we draw our last breath. And that in the scripture even talks about Jesus telling the man who died next to him on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. But there's more to come. We are still waiting for the day when the king returns and the dead are raised to live forever in God's kingdom. We discussed this a little bit. I, I suspect that there is a, a sense in uh, popular culture, and even to some in the church, that really what Jesus is all about is about our souls going to heaven when we die. 
Uh, that is not what it's about primarily. It's primarily about Jesus coming back and the resurrection of the dead. Uh, this is probably a hard sell to a lot of people. We're going to skip over uh, 29 to 34 and then start again at 35 to 49. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Fool, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you do not sow the body that is to be, but a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and each kind of seed its own body. Not all flesh is alike, but there is one flesh for human beings, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. They are both heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one thing, and that of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another story of the stars. Indeed, a star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a physical body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there is a physical body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that's first, but the physical and then the spiritual. The first man was born from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. In a lot of ways, we've been conditioned more by what we would call Gnostic thinking. We see the body and spirit as two separate things. And often we hear of the body as being something bad. So when we hear physical body and spiritual body, it's easy to think of them as solid material body and a floaty sort of essence that's more pure than the physical body. But that isn't what he's talking about. It's more about what animates us. It's more like the difference between an electric car and a gas one. They look similar, but they have different fuel. Life in Christ means that our fuel is the spirit of the risen Christ. But at the resurrection, this spirit will give us bodies that are changed, one that doesn't wear out, get old, or die. Notice all the references to heavenly bodies. In a sense, this is the unfolding of new creation, just as it unfolded the first time in Genesis 1. Heaven isn't a place that we go. It's where the heavenly man comes from. And when he comes from heaven back to earth, the dead will be raised and those alive will still, those still alive will be transformed. And basically this will be the union of heaven and earth. Again, this can be a difficult thing to talk about in our time and place. And then our final part of the chapter. What I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishability and this mortal body must put on immortality. When this perishable body puts on imperishability and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 
And this might be one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, um, and it's commonly what I read at, uh, at graveside funeral services. Again, this, this sums things up a little bit for Paul, and it, it puts the Corinthians solidly in the story of God. And our understanding of being in, in that story of God means that um, we are headed somewhere, that, that Christ is uh, moving us towards the new creation. And the things that we do in this uh, old creation, in our bodies now, actually matter. The things that we do now that are good will be taken up into that new creation, and the bad will be burned away like chaff. Um, and so I'm going to just have you read, I'm just going to read this from the commentary that I've been using, Paul for Everyone by uh, N.T. Wright. He says that what we do in the Lord during the present time will last, will matter, will stand for all time. How God will take our prayer, our art, our love, our writing, our political action, our music, our honesty, our daily work, our pastoral care, our teaching, our health, our whole selves, how God will take this and weave its various strands into the glorious tapestry of his new creation, we can have at present have no idea. That he will do so is part of the truth of the resurrection and perhaps one of the most comforting parts of all. And so this takes us back a little bit to some of the earlier parts of Corinthians and the fact that Paul's not just concerned about sexual or immorality by itself, but because it has an impact on the bodies that we take into the new creation, that it somehow impacts creation. And uh, so how we live our daily lives matters. And uh, not only does it matter now, uh, just for the sake of being obedient but, it, obedient, but it matters into the future and into the new creation. We can't be very certain what how that exactly works, but we can be certain that it does. Well, thank you for listening, and this ends our Bible study on 1 Corinthians.